All right, we are here. This is Behind the Movement. I'm Kyle Fincham. Thank you for listening. Uh, I will be sharing my conversation with Flynn Disney with you today. Uh, Before I get to it, though, I have to thank everybody who came out for Infinite Play in Miami this past weekend. That was a really special day. Um, It was so beautiful, so much fun. Um, It was a pleasure connecting with all of you, um, and everybody was so generous and and showed us such a wonderful day and weekend. Um, So yeah, thank you so much. And uh, a, a really big thank you to Chris Espinal, Nelson Quadris, and Nelson Salas, who uh, helped bring the whole thing together. Um, yeah, and if you're in the Miami area, uh, Chris teaches a, a movement class at Move, Lift, Live. Um, so I strongly suggest checking it out and also just checking out what all three of those guys are up to because they're, they're very uh, passionate and, uh, and knowledgeable teachers um, and good friends. So uh, yeah. Thank you all again. It was wonderful. Um, We also got some events coming up. Uh, It's actually going to be a pretty busy schedule here in July. Um, So as I've said on the previous podcast, I'm going to be out in Boulder, Colorado. They're doing a a five-day movement research camp at Block 1750. And uh, I'll be I'll be facilitating as part of that. Um, there'll be a lot of amazing uh, teachers from various disciplines, including parkour, break dancing, um, hand balancing. So if you can make it out for that, I, I highly recommend doing it. It's July twelfth through the sixteenth. Uh, each day will be a half day, so it'll be like nine to one each day. Um, so yeah, I'll be teaching, uh, a couple classes as part of that. Um, from there, I'm going to hop on a plane and, uh, and head back to Seattle to do another event. Um, we were there a month ago or a month and a half ago. It was great. So while I'm headed, uh, in that direction, I figured, um, why not follow the trajectory and uh, just head back. So I will be doing an infinite play in Seattle on Sunday, July 18th. Um, Yeah, if you want to sign up for that, you can go to movementbrooklyn.com. Actually, if you want to sign up for all of them, you can go to movementbrooklyn.com. There's even a link for the the event at at Block 1750. Um, Yeah. So we'll do that on uh, on Sunday in Seattle. And then the following weekend, uh, July 24th and 25th, uh, I will be back in New York to, to do Infinite Play in Brooklyn. Um, it's going to be a two-day event. The first day is going to be a full day, um, starting in the morning, wrapping in the evening. The second day is just going to be a two-hour jam, and uh, if you want to sign up, you can sign up for, you can choose either or both. Um, So you could just do the first day, the full day, you could just do the two-hour jam, or uh, you can can sign up and do them both, and uh, 
all are correct choices. Um, so yeah, if you're in the, the tri-state area, I would love to see you there for that. That's July 24th and 25th. And then um, the following weekend, um, July 31st, we had such a good time in Miami, as I said, uh, that we decided we may as well head back down and do one more um, while we're in the area. So on July 31st, we'll go back to Miami and, uh, and do Infinite Play. That's a Saturday. Um, yeah, as I said, all of these events are uh, available, um, or links to them are available at movementbrooklyn.com. There should be a, an Infinite Play page or an events page or something. A lot of announcements. Let's, uh, let's jump ahead. Let's get to the conversation with Flynn. Um, I had Kim Amonkwa on the podcast um, a little while back. And after we spoke, she sent me a message and she was like, hey, I think you should uh, uh, reach out to Flynn Disney. I think you y'all might have a lot to, to chat about. And as always, when I get a recommendation, uh, I hop on it. So I immediately messaged Flynn and we were able to coordinate something pretty quickly. And as uh, Kim predicted, we did have a lot to talk about. Um, if you're not familiar with Flynn, let me give you a little bit of his background here. Uh, Flynn is a self-described dilettante, autodidact, and an occasional iconoclast exploring physiology, psychology, and philosophy through parkour and independent research. He's inspired by a slew of shadow mentors. He's interested in not only in the appreciation of ideas, but in their application. A history of working with fear and anxiety in canines and humans, including himself, has opened a particular interest in embodied cognition, the feeling of safety and the nature of emotion. The online exploration group is a culmination of his studies into uncertainty as a psychological constant, the consequences of developing awareness and the power of curiosity and learning. The group explores scientific principles from the ground up, creating teaching tools and seeking deep learning. As a practitioner, he is interested in the interaction between mind and matter, the changing of perception through action and what emerges from embracing uncertainty. I really uh, loved speaking with Flynn. Um, I felt like we could have kept talking for a while. Um, if we uh, end up in Europe in the fall, I'm looking forward to uh, meeting up with him, keeping the conversation going and uh, exploring some ideas. So here it is. This is my conversation with Flynn Disney. Something wonderful about developing a relationship with the elements, with your environment, obviously coming from a parkour background, that's something that, uh, that's a sort of, um, uh, pattern that I've observed is the changing relationship between um, the, uh, the the object and the subject. Uh, mm -hmm. So as a parkour practitioner, as the skill develops, you start to see environments in very different ways. But I remember I was, um, I was hitchhiking 
in uh, uh, out of Andorra, like the little country in between France and Spain. And I, I, I explain that because I didn't know that it was there until I was there. So, and uh, hitchhiking out of there and uh, got a lift with a um, some kind of skydiver, one of the, the, the variations. And uh, as we were uh, driving across the, 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 the countryside, he pointed at the sky and said, that would be a great spot to dive. Because there was a level of cloud cover that was not so high and it was not so low. So when there's no clouds in the sky, it's like there's no relative sense for how fast you're going. Um, and then obviously if it's, if it's uh, too, too cloudy, it's the same sort of thing you can't really see. So I just love that. Um, uh, perception that comes from action. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think all the, the very much the same thing with the surfers developing. I don't know if you surf. I don't. I don't surf, but spend a bit of time with surfers, and they have an eye for the water. Mm -hmm. I think you can only get from from having a need to pay attention to that and and, and to be in that environment. So yeah, I find it to be a very interesting thing. I think it's so fascinating because I think a lot of times there's like this almost like certain arrogance that, that we might have. And I say they're like a collective, we, not you and I, mm -hmm. but that like, I've got this, like, I'm going to do this. I'm not getting any help or support or anything. But the truth is at the end of the day, like no matter how we cut it, we're collaborating with gravity. You know, the ground is our dance partner, mm -hmm. right. At the very, very least. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more we like, or the more I find that I'm welcoming of that, you know, the more support I get, you know, like the, the, the like that, the kind of the asking for help a mm. little bit. Mm. And, you know, I spoke to somebody who, who's been doing contact improv for like 30 years recently. And she talked a lot about that and kind of like, you know, ultimately it's a relationship between two people, but really it's about this relationship with the ground through the people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm hearing you talk and I, and I, and I hear some of these like similar ideas, you know, I think we, we often get caught up in like, what's, what's just in our skin mm -hmm. when it's actually this, like, it's, it, we're, we're, we're all happening all at once with the things all around us. Reality is relational. I think mm -hmm. it's a nice way to describe that. Something mm -hmm. that emerges as our, uh, yeah, as our options increase, as our ability to, um, uh, communicate with uh, various, um, yeah, I guess, through different mediums. Um, I think we, uh, a, a phrase that I uh, coined, uh, the, 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 the attempt to communicate that is entirely one-sided is uh, communicating. <laughs> you know, it sort of lacks the co, the co-ness. And uh, yeah, I think uh, the, the more communicating we can be doing and the less communicating it's... Uh, there's so much to learn from uh, yeah, real world feedback uh, also. And I think contact improvisation is uh, very much real world feedback, whether that's in the shape of the floor, which can be a perfectly harsh teacher, uh, or in the shape of another person, which uh, even more so. Um, and I think, yeah, again, parkour has been uh, a great, uh, has the capacity to be a, a, a great source of uh, real world feedback. And, and uh, I think that's a tremendously important thing to have 
uh, that kind of communication with the world, with reality. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise, we risk only communicating um, and, and missing quite a large piece of uh, quite important things. I don't know if you've read um, uh, Katie Bauman's uh, Move Your DNA. A, a little bit. Yeah, and she talks about how we've kind of like outsourced our movement. Um, this idea of outsourcing our movement. So like all the movement we would have been doing thousands of years ago, like over time, we've like outsourced it to either technology or other people or something. Mm. Um, But I feel like we could go as far to say as like we've outsourced our communication, Mm -hmm. right? Like we, in the past, we would have been doing so many layers of communicating with other people, with ourselves, right? With, with, the environments and the landscapes that we're kind of like moving through, like, yeah, but we've, 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 we've outsourced a lot of that. I think layers is a really good word to describe that as well, because to be a hunter gatherer on the, you know, these sort of deeply entwined in these landscapes, you're interacting with the world in such a layered way, multi-layered way, multi-sensory way, um, whether you know navigational or uh, considering the, uh, the the movements of animals and um, smelling, sensing, uh, who, who knows the, the the depths of sensation that these people experience? And I think um, that's something I'm very interested in as well. Is sort of clawing back some relationship with the senses, the feelings, not only as uh, these sort of burdensome uh, extra parts of life as I think a lot of um, at least the conversation the popular conversation around psychology I, I think maybe doesn't highlight the uh, the adaptive nature of uh, things like feeling and, and intuition uh, I think we can map that quite clearly not as a uh, spooky concept I think people often speak about intuition as a sort of magical spooky thing and Perhaps that's uh, there, there, there's something there I, I wouldn't proclaim to, to know. Um, we could speak about that, but um, as, as a mechanistic phenomena, uh, yeah, in, in much the same way that one would teach um, one would teach an animal, we can also teach our intuition sort of through exposure um, uh, to. variables and, and feedback right so again kind of coming back to that notion sorry I, I lost i lost you for a moment well good mm-hmm. you sort of like stuck mm-hmm. in a blissful rapture there for a moment you looked very yeah. happy i didn't want to disturb you <laughs> um but yeah, so just just to summarize, I think the, um, the the reconnection with the sense of intuition is also something I'm trying to facilitate more through the practice of parkour. Uh, this connection to the, um, the the sense of possibility uh, in, in, in a way, and, and so I've been looking at these um, emotions first from a kind of academic perspective so like w- literally what are these things uh, so actually first of all not from a first of all not from an embodied perspective first of all reading about it uh, and then going into the the, the the kind of first person dive but um 
understanding these things as um, unconditioned responses to the world. So these things are unconditioned responses, but they become conditioned. So for example, uh, we both experience something that, it, that feels threatening. We both have the same physiological response to that. Maybe the heart beats, the, the sympathetic nervous system, blah, 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 all of this. Same physiology, but the thing that triggers us is completely different. Um, you're scared of heights and I'm terrified of spiders, you know, but then, you know, that, that, so, so uh, the question that I think that I'm, I've been really interested in is, um, first of all, what are these specific markers trying to tell us? Because there are many gradients of like between abject terror and uh, I'm, I'm cautious, but I'm, I'm going to, I, I'm going to kind of move forward. Um, so, so first of all, this question of what do these intuitions, uh, we sense the difference between specific feelings in the body uh, and map these onto uh, sort of signals that give us a meaningful information. Uh, and then second of all, can we develop these things to, to be meaningful? Um, and, and then one thing I would, I would say on, on that topic is um, that because intuition is a mechanistic ph phenomena uh, that, that becomes conditioned, it, it works very well within sort of familiar circumstances. A again, parkour is a great example. If I look at a, a six foot jump and then I go for it and I make the space and I land and I feel very comfortable afterwards, I'm conditioning myself to feel comfortable in this kind of experience. And, I, and likewise, if I look at a 10 foot jump and I jump across and I you know, barely make it or something like this, then maybe I'm going to be a little bit more cautious on the next one. Uh, so these sensations, can they become, uh, can they be conditioned? Can they be trained to reveal uh, accurate information about the world that we're maybe not partial to at a cognitive level? So one of the other interesting things about uh, intuition is that it seems that it's quite capable of computing uh, complex layered kind of contextual information. These, these small body language uh, uh, words, let's say, um, that, that people give these little kind of contextual cues and all we process in, in a very short amount of time. But these things are not represented very clearly uh, whereas perhaps co cognition, these sort of thinking, uh, more rational side is very good at processing perhaps kind of linear information, but um, the, the, the speed of this is not, not so high. Um, when, yeah, I'll just round out that, that point that I started making. So um, the uh, point of uh, intuition being useful in familiar and closed environments Parkour is an example, perhaps uh, judging people's character, at, at least superficially in, 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 in the, uh, to, to some degree. These are situations where intuition ca can be useful. However, moving into larger scale, uh, complex stochastic systems, intuition is no longer useful. So uh, am I trying to decide what Bitcoin to invest in, what cryptocurrency 
not going to help you. Far too complex. Um, too many variables, too, too dependent. Um, so I think with this kind of basic understanding, it's like, okay, now, now we have a sense of the arena that we're, we're actually speaking about. Um, so when we, when we speak about, when we invoke an idea like emotion or intuition, and uh, I find that to be a, a, a very useful and, and interesting and potentially empowering thing, again, with this quest of, of uh, reconnecting to the, uh, the kind of uh, innate intelligence of, of the human organism, because we're, we're, we're quite wonderful, all of us. That's, that's my belief. Uh, we're, we're quite advanced creatures. I agree. I, I, I mean, I don't know. You were saying so many things that I want. I was like, I'm, I'm super into. Um, Great. The, the, the first thing is, uh, I like that you're saying that there's a certain, almost like a ceiling, that that it, we inevitably hit with our, with our innate intelligence, and it's almost like our, uh, where we are at on an evolutionary perspective, is not has not caught up with what the world looks like. Right. So that's why mm. we like, we look at things and we're just, you know, oftentimes those people will say, and I've said it where we, it's, it's really kind of a throwaway line that we're, you know, we, you know, we're, we're, we're most adept to be in tribes of like 75 or a hundred, but that is speaking to that, that thing, that, that small thing, right? Like our, our intuition is kind of like limited to like, not simple, but, but smaller scope. We, you know, we haven't evolved to that place of really maybe even being able to, to navigate the complexities of, of large numbers, 20,000 people, a hundred thousand people, like these cities that, you know, are, are millions of tribes over Mm -hmm. um, that we haven't reached that place on, on an, on a level of like intuition. That's why we have to like lean into knowledge Mm -hmm. instead of our intelligence to like Mm -hmm. navigate that thing. Yeah. And, but then to kind of bring it back to the other side, you were talking about like these kind of like two different parts of our brain and the way we think. And you were speaking about them in a, in a similar language to what I use where like knowledge and intelligence or knowledge and intuition. But we, it's almost as if because we, we got to this place where we're able to kind of knowledge our way into like a, like managing global communities that we think mm-hmm. that knowledge is like the be all and end all when knowledge is great, but it might be kind of the newest thing from an evolutionary perspective, like knowledge, logic, reason that we're capable of doing when we do have this like billions of years of kind of like evolutionary intelligence that exists in us. Mm -hmm. So like the words we're saying are interesting and everybody listening to them can kind of enjoy them. But at the end of the day, these are kind of complicated things that we're able to do with our words and do with our language when like what's happening when our nervous systems interact, for instance, or the way our nervous Mm -hmm. system interacts with like an environment that is complex in a way that like only kind of like art can capture. I think I agree. (laughs) Um, I think, I think I agree. There's uh, great degrees of reality which seem not to be easily represented in words um and and here i'm uh, running the risk of trying to do so um as it would be fairly obvious the listeners i'm I'm quite a uh, you could say left-brained person uh in the sense of um uh naturally quite analytic 
uh, not naturally deeply in my felt sense, which is why I'm so drawn to it. Uh, likewise with many other things, which I'm sure we'll speak about. Um, I, I think the, the question of knowledge is an interesting one. Uh, we're faced with a, uh, what I think is a kind of real dichotomy of, of knowledge between, um, we could say kind of rote learning, uh, sort of top down, uh, this is the name of the bird, remember the name of the bird kind of knowledge compared to uh, what I would describe as um, embodied knowledge or um, integrated, integrated knowledge. So this would be something like um, if somebody asks you to describe a movement that you're very familiar with, but you've never described it before, you could do so very successfully without ever having um, used the specific words that you're going to use. If you are asked to um, describe something that you've learned through this top-down kind of rote learning way, it's likely that you'll revert back to these words that you've, you've been used. So it's not sort of, um, I think one is, to go from here. One is sort of generated through the experience. Um, and, and, and I think it's not limited to movement, um, but I think it is limited to things that have been experienced directly. And, uh, and, and, and so I think it's very important to, um, within the learning process, which is something I'm deeply interested in, to uh, either have experiences that contribute to the understanding or to analogize the knowledge to past experiences. So this is something that I learned from uh, Douglas Hofstede, who's a uh, freaky genius. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, th th this notion that um, analogy is the core of cognition is, is the name of the lecture. And he's speaking about how it's the ability to recognize the common essence between two things that essentially allows us to, to learn. And, and I can really relate to that in, in, a, in the context of movement, where my ability to do something new is largely predicated on my ability to do something similar to that new thing in, in, in a sense, but also within the learning process of more abstract information, uh, something I've been exploring with my uh, um, more kind of academic teaching is we take a uh, concept or principle, whatever it is that we're we're uh, we're discussing, pull it out of the abstract and into the real. How have you directly experienced this in your life? Uh, and I think that this can kind of act as an intuition pump, in in the sense that it takes it away from the purely cognitive and, and it actually kind of rams it back into the uh, embodied sense and, and theoretically this. Um, returns it into that process of something that's been experienced because then you go ah yeah it's, it's like this uh it, it, maybe it feels like this or this is then i can i can notice it next time and we can also speak about uh, awareness is something quite interesting yeah i mean you're you're i mean you're hitting s stuff that i feel like it is so I don't know. It, 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 it's, I don't want to say neglected because I think deep down people know that this is like how they learn, but I think that people lean so hard into words 
They want to mm. like knowledge their way into a skill or a technique or something, mm. as opposed to like using, using tools like awareness rather than knowledge to like get there. Um, but what? like, well, it, uh, I'll just give, give a quick story. Um, one of the, I, I was training with a friend in, uh, in Vienna once and, um, uh, he was helping me with some acrobatic movements and, uh, he was like, okay, you're going to do a wolf lift. I was like, why? I'm, 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 a bit, I'm a bit scared. Like, how can I, where should I put my foot? And he was like, nope, just, just, just do it. And I, and I, and I kept on trying to ask for advice, but really by asking for advice, I was only mitigating my fear. I was looking for a, a buffer something to 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 excuse my uh, hesitation you, you could say so I, th I think this sort of thing is happening quite a lot have you have you read the inner game of tennis no i haven't oh you have to it's like i mean it's 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 listen i mean like I, my my wish is to be in europe in the fall if i'm if i if it happens i'll i'll bring a copy for you as a gift but i think okay. it's it is this it's this thing where he's talking about through the lens of tennis rather than saying for instance um, hit the ball in the middle of the racket rather than saying hit the ball in the middle of the racket. He'll throw someone 20 balls and say, notice where the ball lands on the racket. Yeah. So rather than like your, your ego being like the driver of the action, your ego is an observer to the action mm -hmm. or, or a director of awareness mm -hmm. and saying, Hey, like intelligence, place mm -hmm. place your awareness there yeah as we do this and then it will learn where it's having the most efficient and successful mm. swats at the ball yeah. um because then it's also the removing of judgment and i mean i'd love to hear your thoughts on like um how judgment can 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 limit mm. kind of the learning process as well yeah i, th I think I, I, i'd like to quickly try and define awareness uh, which I, I understand is the well. Uh, we could get into into a sticky conversation, which I'm not sure that I can actually do right now. Awareness, consciousness, things things like this. Um, we we could do that, but it would be very slow and trudgy. Um, <laughs> but a, awareness, I, I understand, is the ability to sense difference. In in, in a sense, at least. Um, a definition of awareness that we could be aware of and uh, the ability to act to, to move the to, to coordinate the body uh, seems to be very much predicated on the ability to sense smaller differences so whether you're playing tennis or whether you're doing parkour whether you're playing guitar be able to sense the difference between um i won't use tennis as an analogy because I've never played tennis in my life before but um let's let's stick to parkour then so let's say um the ability to notice the uh, trajectory on a run-up and the ability to to say to, to to notice uh what it is to have the chest lower down or the chest higher up and what kind of effect that has the ability to use that effect is not predicated on the knowledge of it it's predicated on the ability to sense the difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this is also, I think, a huge problem with uh, technique. Um, and I'm someone who's gravitated a lot to uh, a very like technical way of, of practicing. 
um, for, for sort of obvious reasons that I've explained this like analytic thing it's, it's great fun but and um, very limited and um, I think the issue with technique is that it doesn't necessarily promote sensitivity yeah in, in the sense that if I say put your body like this it doesn't say notice the difference between this and this and so I, I think there's a large, there's a, there's a real danger in this sort of uh, prescription where we say, do this, uh, because it can actually harm our ability to sense difference. And it's ultimately that ability to sense difference on which our ability to make more refined movements is predicated. So uh, I think that's a, that's a great, I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Eric Weinstein. Mm -mm. He's, he's great. I, I highly recommend him, but he's um, coined the term uh, edugenic harm from, uh, I think the word is iatrogenic harm, which is like the harm that can be done oh, in medicine. Yeah, iatrogenic, like potentially harmful side effects. Iatrogenic, right. Yeah. And uh, edugenic being the potentially, the, the potential harm that can be done through teaching. Mm -hmm. I see this as being... Uh, in my experience, almost the norm uh, is is the sort of harm inflicted through the uh, sort of over prescription of uh, technique, and, and I'm very very much um, in in the party of people who have been over prescribing technique and things like this. But um, yeah, my perspective is that uh, we have so much. Uh, sort of useful knowledge um, uh, uh, that can be used, principles, things like this, that can be used to kind of direct teaching. It's like, it, it, it's almost irresponsible not to use some of these things. So just like, for, for example, I'm kind of referring to the um, uh, somatosensory uh, cortex. So the, the, the two cortices of the brain are next to each other that hold maps of the available movements and the available sensations. My, my words are maybe a little bit off, but um, the, the implication being that our ability to sense and our ability to move are, are very much uh, connected. So um, with an understanding of this, it's like, oh, okay. So perhaps when we're teaching, we don't necessarily just want to emphasize the movement as a sort of thing that I can see as a coach, and I can say that was good, that was bad. We actually perhaps want to emphasize the sensation that drives the movement, which is very difficult to spot. So as a, as a teacher, I, I can't really say, yeah, that one felt good. No, that one didn't. It, um, and, and, and so it really changes the, as in my experience, change the structure of, uh, it's changed the orientation in a, in a, in a positive way, but both in my own practice um, uh, and as well as communicating with people. So uh, yeah, again, quite a lot there, but. No, I think, I think that there's, there's this temptation to, maybe it's because, you know, the nature of monetary exchange and stuff, and there needs to, you know, be this feeling that, 
something is being handed back for for a customer that like they're the the, the thing that we all seem to lean towards is like like an accumulation of words or something so like people almost feel like well if i'm teaching then they need to hear me talk a lot about something right yeah. whereas like you know as i've begun to start talking a lot about on here is that like the teachers who i found who are doing the most magical things say very very little oh, and, it, uh, and they're, uh, yeah great and they're, and they're not really teaching, you know, it was Shira Yaziv who said that, to me that she was not interested in teaching, that she was interested in facilitating. And, and I feel like there's so much like power in that because it gives the freedom to say like, to say, I'm not going to say, mm-hmm. you know, how am I supposed to know? I may know what knowledge you don't have, mm-hmm. but I don't know what your nervous system doesn't know, mm-hmm. you know? And like, mm-hmm who am I to walk into a situation and, and decide what someone needs to learn as opposed to maybe what does it look like if I create opportunities for someone to learn what they need to learn? Exactly. One of the things, and, and it's wonderful to hear that it makes me a little bit emotional because it's something that is very dear to my heart. <laughs> but um, the role of making mistakes, I'm, I'm a huge fan of making mistakes, um, something of, a, of, a, of an amateur mistake maker myself. And uh, I, I think that pro- so I think that process is not I think I'm, I'm I'm quite certain that that process is absolutely vital to the um, motivational and learning structures, sort of physiologically speaking, from what I understand. That the ability to run into things that aren't as expected is uh, f- fundamental to. Um, um, how, how would I say this is making meaning in a way kind of or orienting our attention. And um, so I, I'm, I'm an autodidact. So I've been teaching myself stuff for um, the last four or five years. And my entire learning process has been run into an error. Uh, sorry, run into a, um, yeah, run into an error, run into a surprise, run into, I thought this was going to happen, but something completely different happened. What the, what the hell's going on? Uh, and, and, and whilst I was never a successful student, I know it's, it's, it's poor form to use myself as an example, but whilst I was never a successful student, this process of running into an error, orienting towards that error, and then going down the rabbit hole until I had some resolution uh, that I could then perhaps apply and then run into my next mm-hmm. error, it has been so uh it has facilitated we could say so much engagement um, and, and i was thinking earlier today about being in school and just this constant feeling of tiredness really a, 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 a real difficulty to, to stay awake mm-hmm. um, through the lessons and experiencing that to the point where I, I, I thought this was just the norm was that this is just part of school or part of learning or whatever it was, but just like really deeply trying, uh, struggling to stay awake. And uh, through the last four or five years of, of self-study, it, it, it's been, it's suddenly I'm, I'm uh, reading like fairly jargon heavy technical stuff with full attention. And, and making my way through through com- like complex works. And it's like, how can we facilitate this process 
is the question um, that I, I think we need to ask. And it sort of alludes to what we were saying earlier that um, the key part of learning is not the information, but it's the state of the learner, mm -hmm. their relationship with the information. So, uh, yeah, I think for that to happen, hold on, could you could you say that one more? Could you could, could sorry? Could you say that one more time? You broke up a little bit. Ah, uh, yeah, um, that the key part of the learning process is not the information being transmitted but the state of the learner to receive the information mm -hmm. and how they relate to the information and the role of uh, surprise and error correction or the experience of error seems absolutely vital to that and so i think a, a, a wonderful role for the teacher, facilitator, whatever it is, is to be someone who shepherds people to meeting reality in a safe enough way that reality doesn't bite them so hard that they're left traumatized, mm -hmm. but that they're left um, oriented, they're left engaged. Well, I think, um, you know, you, you referenced to like school and, and what we might feel in like kind of like formal education settings. And I, I don't know so much when I reflect on it, I'm like, well, that really wasn't learning. That was like memorizing. Yeah. You know, a lot of the learning was actually happening through like the human interactions, you know, and like the, the navigating the space and, and, you know, having like those sensory experiences. Mm -hmm. Maybe sometimes there were certain things like that, but, you know, memorizing and, and, and learning are, are two different things. Um, but when you talk about like, you know, that idea of finding something you're hungry for and being able to just like, you know, swallow all mm -hmm. of it, I forget where I read it, but it was like, there was something about kind of distinguishing between like the knowledge and information that we're told to learn and the knowledge information that we choose to learn mm -hmm. on our own. Mm -hmm. right they're two different things and in, in in our like our our taste for that one that we choose is so much more delicious yeah <laughs> almost by definition we're going to uh yeah appreciate that more uh, so mm -hmm. something i've also been learning a bit more about is um the uh role of uh choice as a sort of ethical phenomenon so, so i've been studying uh, this topic of uh, cybernetics mm -hmm. over the last uh, four, four or five months, um, which is very roughly the, so it's sometimes called the science of um, communication and control in the animal and the automatic machine. Uh, it can also be described as the study of self-organizing systems. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a guy called Gordon Past who calls it something really weird like the art of defensible metaphors and I still have no no idea what that means absolutely no idea so it's, it's full of very strange wonderful people and um, this this sort of multidisciplinary topic cybernetics um, that the word comes from the ancient Greek ubernates which means to steer like to steer a ship 
the word government derives from the same root. So that relating to control, steering. The type of thing that is dealt with is essentially, as I understand it, information within closed systems, or, or at least sort of first iteration of cybernetics. So there's first order cybernetics, which is a study of um, observed systems. So this is perhaps your, um, the, the, the simplest example is a thermostat, is a self-regulating system. It has a goal temperature, let's say it's 25 degrees. Uh, it then senses, this is a key part, that it senses the difference between the goal and the, uh, what is being sensed in, and then acts to minimize that difference. So it's set to hit 25 degrees, it's at 27 degrees, it goes, okay, we're at 27 degrees, we need to switch the air cooling on, whatever. And then it gets to 25 degrees, great. So that, that's an example of a, the type of system that would be discussed in, in first order cybernetics. Uh, the, the sort of study of observed systems. And then there's second order cybernetics, which is the study of observing systems. And then stuff gets a lot weirder. So th this is sort of what I was um, mentioning at the beginning, the uh, evolving relationship between the object and the subject, how choice creates Perception. There's a quote from Heinz von Forster, who was one of the um, pioneers of second order cybernetics, which is um, very roughly if you want to learn how to see, learn how to act. And uh, yes, yeah, so that, that sort of ties back to the, uh, the notion of, of choice in the, in the sense that it's. Um, the uh, the ability to choose, I think, is not only creating the possibility for, for choices where the student is, is engaged or the, or the learner or the, the human or the, the animal, whatever. It, 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 these are very broad ideas in a sense. Whomever. The... Uh, There's another cybernetic principle, which is um, it's called requisite variety. And uh, this, this is that the system with the most available states has the potential to influence a system with less available states. If I'm a, a fighter and I have a greater range of movements available to me, I have an advantage. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to win. Chess player, same same story. Uh, solving a puzzle, same story. So, so it sort of paints the picture. These are very broad principles. And um, my sense with education generally is that I think we want to load people up with... Uh, if we want people to be sort of in, 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 in intelligent and capable, 
and uh, fundamentally free. I think we need to load people up with a very broad range of, of uh, very broad understanding. It, it seems that this um, breadth of understanding lends itself more to this sort of principle of requisite variety. The more choices we potentially have, the more we can have influence. It's like the, the more uh, information we have, like the, the better predictions we can make, like there's no answers. Mm. They're just good predictions, mm. right? Right. Um, and as you said, it's like in, in education, oftentimes it's like we're kind of just like feeding certain lanes. You know, we don't even go so far as to like, um, and I don't mean you and I, again, I mean more like the, the broader education system. We don't even like, we don't even cross pollinate between the subjects you know, in school. So we're like, you know, we don't even necessarily open those pathways to see like how these things interact with one another so that we can get that new information and, and, and be able to continue to make broader and wider predictions about things. Yeah. Right. It's, um, yeah, our, our ability to see is, is, is really limited to, to the exposure we've had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, I think I'm, I'm a big proponent of, uh, uh, I suppose, liberty in, in the sense of um, the ability to uh, guide your own life according to the highest values that you, you have. And, and I think to do that, we again, we need uh, some degree of awareness. And as I suspect, we come back to this um, mm -hmm. Uh, perhaps see how these points tie in together, the ability to uh, sense differences and creating the possibility for choice. Mm -hmm. And the more aware we are of the texture, the subtleties of perhaps the uh, sort of invisible forces that are guiding some of these um, these experiences that we have and uh, perhaps the more uh, the more we're aware of these the more choice we can have the better hope we have of uh, steering our lives in the direction that we find to be most congruent with our highest values and most fundamentally dignified mm. I, I find this to be a very important um uh, thing is we're in this very uh, strange global moment where um, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to do no, that's, that's sort of a full stop there it's becoming increasingly more difficult to do yeah but, uh, I, I I think to myself quite a bit about like our potentially limited understanding of of how little sensory experience we are receiving in terms of what we're capable of. And, you know, when, you know, maybe when he, people hear us talking about choice and information, it's not always like this, like standing at a fork in the road and saying left or right. It's like, we're talking about like very nuanced choice that like, we're not, it, it, that, that kind of steps beyond the logic and reason a lot of times. And we get that information not through 
necessarily you and me writing about it in a paper or, or, or reading it, the knowledge in the paper have the ability to, to validate it or maybe give us a roadmap into a direction to go. But we have these, this really complicated ability to like sense and feel and experience. And I think that just to, you know, from where I'm sitting, like to give some clarification about what I think about, like, we need more of that, you know, and, and all the things that our life kind of keeps handing to us, keeps kind of limiting and taking away our sensory experience. Right. And even right now, you know, like you and I can't really necessarily have like an honest sensory interaction over zoom across Mm -hmm. continents and things like that, you know, like, I'm seeing your eyes and seeing your, the way you're smiling and tilting your head and like I'm getting information, but it may not actually mm-hmm. be the honest information. And maybe you see me and maybe my eyes tilt down and you're like, oh, well, your senses are telling you like, oh, he's disinterested or something, but it so, might yeah. actually just be like a blip in the screen as my eyes kind of like shift side to side. But Absolutely, yeah. we need so much of this. And I, and I realized that not only do we limit our sensory experiences in every way, by sanitizing everything and flattening everything out. But I, I learned recently that like, you know, we also are, are going through this process of actually kind of reorganize, reorganizing our sensory hierarchy, right? So there is this, this great author I read called, named Johanny Palazma, who's a, an architect. Um, and he wrote about uh, how we're becoming visually dominant as opposed to auditory dominant. Mm -hmm. And pretty much up until like the most recent times in human existence, we, we leaned into our auditory sense and then our, our sense of touch. And then our eyes kind of came after that. And he points out that these are very intimate senses. There are these senses that like bring us close to things, bring us close to people, bring us close to our environments. Whereas the eyes are these things that we use to like keep things at a distance right? Mm. Like we're actually these very like close, like intimate characters, you know, like we want to put our hands on things. We want to like, for me to hear you. I mean, I have like, I have buds inside of my ears that your voice is actually shooting right into my brain, Uh you know? And not only are we not getting the full, our full sensory experience, but we're also now doing it in a, in a, an order that is not how we've necessarily evolved through it. And I wonder about what that means moving forward. In some ways, I think we can look at some of the things and there's simple ones, you know, like what shoes have done to our feet and posture. And then there's the more complex ones that, you know, we won't know about until maybe you and I are dead. But, you know, um, yeah, I wonder because you mentioned about sensory experience and things that you've been kind of pondering on. And, and you know, that was, you know, a bit of my monologue about the things that I, I, I kind of mull over, but I'm curious about you and where you're coming at and also like how you're integrating that into like your approach to and, and, and teaching or facilitating. I find parkour still after 15 years to be just fascinating and the depths of possibility, not just for myself, but for what has been done and what will be continued, what will continuously be done uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the, the 
the, the, the scale, the intensity, the complexity of movement. I don't think there's anything else that maybe not to a fine level. It's, it's debatable and there's also no reason to make a judgment on that, but there's a level of sensory depth that is expressed through parkour and, and, and it's multi-dimensional in a way that is um, yeah is, is perhaps unique. And by multi-dimensional, what I mean is there's the ordinate let, let, let's say, let's say the ordinary senses, although they're they're all quite entwined and, and and none are alone, and they're all quite extraordinary from from the little that I understand of them. However, alongside these senses are also the uh, intuitive senses, the awareness of the, the uh, does this feel good, does this feel bad, the the noticing of the beating of the heart, the the utilizing of the beating of the heart or the adrenal system to to, to move, um, but alongside that is also the uh, the use of of cognition, of rationality, and to sort of tie all of these things together to sort of appraise the the sensory experience. So. I, I find that when I'm teaching now, um, it took some time away from, from teaching as it had a sort of identity crisis naturally. As I was learning a lot of, of, um, of these, uh, these ideas and coming to practice them, but then still teaching in, in this fairly like, okay, go, go and do that. Okay, that was good, that was bad. It's sort of an identity crisis. So it took a bit of time away. And coming back, one of the things that I try to emphasize is to give choices and allow the student to orientate towards the choice that they want to orient towards. So, so this might be in, in the shape of asking, do you want to continue doing this? You know, so there's like, because with, within parkour, we're generally like moving it's moving from spot to spot okay there's a walk here and then there's like a rail that's like 50 meters down the road and um it tends to be that maybe you'll have an intense moment in one area and then the energy of that area kind of runs a little bit low and maybe you'll come back there another time and the energy's changed and something else will appear but it, it's uh these things are they sort of have to be authentic and giving the space for those authentic interactions, um, authentic relationships, as we were, as we were alluding to, to emerge um, within the within the, the, the within the student within you know if you want to describe them as a nervous system or as a as a, as a self or, or I don't know, um, but creating the creating the space for them to, uh, the space for them to have the authentic experience and the toolkit to navigate the authentic experience. And I think all of these things are fundamentally sensory in, in, in the sense that we have to notice them. Another thing which I find very interesting is um, the, uh, which I've been putting some attention on is the beating of the heart. So just, uh, sorry, be more specific. 
the awareness of the heart. And studying for, well, I'll, I'll, I'll speak at some point about the exploration group, um, studying for the, or accumulating research for the exploration group. One of the research portals that I put together was regarding interoception, the sense of what is happening inside the body. And one of the things that I learned from this was that the awareness of the heart is a sort of interoceptive index in, in the sense that a greater awareness of the heart beating also creates, you know, that's a little word, but let's say creates a greater awareness of the gut, intestines, and the gastric movement. So greater awareness of the heart, greater awareness of the gastric system. And I'm inferring from that greater awareness of the other visceral organs, but I don't, I don't know that that's the case. And so that's something I've also been using in classes. Very hard to measure the success of these things, you know. Um, but so um, applying this notion of, uh, okay, well, we can either sit down and kind of lower the uh, tension of the body, lower the intensity of the, of the sort of resting experience, hone in on the heart rate, uh, spend some time focusing just purely on, on the beating of the heart, maybe walk around a little bit like, to keep a sense of that. That's one way. Another way was, uh, has been to uh, go and do burpees, 20 burpees, 30 burpees, whatever, raise the heart rate, and then sit with it as it descends. So then the signal is stronger, so it's a little bit easier to notice. And from my experiences, from the stuff that I've read, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would say it's something quite interesting. Um, as a you know, whether to put that into a sort of daily routine, uh, to 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 do a practice like this, and then see how it, how it how it manifests through the day. If you can keep a sense of the beating heart. Um, this could be interesting, whether this is within the practice of parkour, this could be interesting. But I think to use this as a way to actually access the intuitive sense is, is it's for me that the, 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 what this is a sort of portal to is, is perhaps, but obviously this is a very deep topic um, of uh, reconnecting to the felt sense, but it's, it, it's perhaps one way uh, to open a kind of gateway in, into the um, uh, internal senses and then perhaps to kind of build that relationship. Maybe, maybe it's really very much only the, uh, the, the gateway and then, and then you have very far to go to uh, kind of explore. But uh, yeah, so I, I think creating a, um, the reason for me to come from this academic, more sort of academic perspective, speaking about these, these things or, or at least attempting to um, or is it, I think there's, there's just a lot of talk about these things. And I, I, I think I found that very off-putting because I really didn't know what people were talking about. But then actually having a more kind of like mechanistic understanding is sort of grounded like, oh, okay, when we're talking about an emotion, you mean like a kind of stereotype, like homeostatic response to a perceived like inner or um, outer change. Like, 
Okay, like it's your body trying to like regulate essentially. So the sort of currency of regulation, and then you feel that, uh, and then maybe that, that that influences how you see things. That influences your internal state. That perhaps influences how you act, or does it? Like that. Th this is the okay. That's the arena of the conversation that we're having. So, so I find it important to um, ground these ideas in um, some sort of scientific. Uh, research not to then say um, this is what you should do but, but more to say like this is the context of maybe what you're experiencing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when you were speaking about this um, this idea of kind of observing the heart rate observing the heartbeat right I kept hearing or, or being reminded of like meditation and i do think it's also kind of arrogant for 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 me or i don't know maybe anyone else i have no idea definitely for me to claim any sort of like understanding of meditation and that i've reached any point of like even the longest time i've been still to be in a place of meditation maybe i've never gotten past like concentration or contemplation but i would say that varying degrees of observation on like the self one level and definitely on the self two level, you know, not to suddenly change our language for this conversation. Um, sure. <laughs> but um, it seems like a similar idea. It seems like it, it it's closely aligned with, with some of kind of the, the takeaways from, from meditation that, that, that observing, right. That, that kind yeah. of, innate observing that that can unfold externally and internally oh, oh, are you are you referring um to what we can maybe describe as metacognition like the awareness of thoughts and their origin thoughts feelings and their origin mm, i mean maybe sometimes i think i was referring more to kind of like that like I said, you know, whatever you and I are talking about is maybe not actually what we're talking about, right? Always possible. Yeah, no, like you know, there's there, there's a there's a there's a there's a uh, a subconscious conversation probably happening between us. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that it, it, I was kind of referring to maybe that where it's like you know if I if I kind of place my attention on my breath, for instance, there are all these kind of other observations that I make that I can't really even talk about that. Are, are, are probably being made by my kind of more like intuitive self yeah. about what's going on internally. And I can carry that information with me as I go about my day and something might happen and I may react one way instead of another way. And someone might ask, oh, like, why did you do that? I'm like, I, I don't know, but it might be attached to some of these, these things. So I was thinking about, as you were talking about drawing the attention to the heart rate at at different times and at different intensities and, and, you know, allowing the observer to, to, to bring their attention to it. And then there are the ways that they can articulate, but I, I guess I'm super curious about like, you know, the, the ways that we can articulate where it's like, just again, kind of like the, the inner game of tennis, placing the attention mm -hmm. there and like what information we, we carry with us as we kind of like move on from that, that place. Yeah. I, I always, I, I, I find this funny at least, but I, I always like to sort of hedge my intentions in, in the sense of like, 
I, I'm the first to admit that I'm not 100% aware all the time, thank God. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 let, let, let's say I'm, I'm having a conversation with a loved one and there's been some sort of uh, friction, some, some sort of exchange. And uh, I, I will tend to offer several hypotheses for like what has happened um, rather than attaching to and, 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 and at least two thirds of those will not be flattering to myself. Um, so rather than attaching to the sort of soothing narrative, which is like, well, I was doing this for your benefit and you've misinterpreted this. I, generally I'll succeed in going like, I think it's very possible I was being, you know, uh, like um, not, not being bad or anything like this, but just like, that there was a sort of self-interest there um, and uh, one of the, the the books that really just threw me asunder was um, uh, The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson and I, I don't know if I can recommend people read it um, it's, I think it says in the introduction it's like you can read this we don't know if it's good for you but you can read it it's like so it, it's it's yeah exploring this idea of like uh, self-deception is the norm that a lot of the time we say we're doing something uh, for one reason, we're actually doing it for a different reason. And uh, these things are highly complex, the way that we interact with the world. We've got all of these evolutionary things and all of these emotions. And I, as, you, as you said, uh, the emotions are generally tied into, if not always tied into some sort of evolutionary reality. So they're not always our sort of highest self if there, if there is such a thing. So, um, yeah, I was, I was very inspired by this after s several uh, months of uh, sheer existential dread at my entire reality coming falling into pieces. But um, yeah, so I, I, I think one of the outcomes of this process for me has been, um, so, so I've, also, I've also suffered with uh, a lot of problems with all terminology, but I'll just, I'll just say it wrong. Um, so I've, I've, I've experienced depression uh, a lot in my life. And the reorganization of my experience from some of these books and these ideas has been such that I don't tend to become so attached to the stories. I mean, what I'm saying is a story. But I mean, that's an example. I think what I just said there is an example, but um, I, I think it's created an awareness so that the feeling often precedes the narrative, that we feel a certain way and then we develop a story around that feeling to justify it. It's understandable, like we're really all trying our best. one way in which I understand meditation is it's an opportunity to lower the intensity of an experience or of a moment in order to sense more difference, sense perhaps. Okay, my mind goes to, my mind goes to this, this experience where, um, 
I'm trying a, a movement, I'm trying to jump, and I and I think about something in that moment, and it makes me really self-conscious. And if I'm in that moment, I I, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm aware that I'm feeling self-conscious or that I'm feeling um, inhibited in some way. But it's it's I think it's only until we really, really, really lower what the the, the sort of background of what we're experiencing i think it's really only in these instances where we can gain a sense of the um uh, create, create the space to notice perhaps the things that are leading to what we're experiencing if we ever truly can i, I don't know but i've certainly experienced uh, many um spaces like this of greatly reducing the intensity of what i've been experiencing in order to notice what I hadn't been previously noticing. And again, I don't want to proclaim to be um, an expert in meditation, although I, I, I sort of inadvertently did because I, I made a very contentious comment, which was um, movement is not meditation. But um, I made a decision a while ago to just be wrong about some stuff. So I, I was happy to to um, just uh, say something bold and, and be wrong and, and see what would happen. So um, my perspective there was sort of what I've said is that um, movement is a high intensity experience such that it is not possible when you're moving or perhaps even sort of within the bounds of movement if you're you know your heart's beating really intensely to uh, connect to some of the uh, roots of what you're experiencing. Um, there are so, so I, I imagined a a uh, a crude spectrum between sprinting away from a bear being a very intense experience where you're not probably going to have any profound revelations, although maybe <laughs> life's, life's quite short and death is near, so that's quite a profound revelation. But but I think specifically in, in the context of noticing things. And, and then on the other hand, you have sort of the state of perhaps um, uh, a, a deep dreamless sleep or, or something analogous to this where maybe you're still conscious and uh, obviously that's a spectrum so there are you know uh, like the whirling dervishes the sufis who spin and create meditative states through this or they meditate through this intensive movement so it, it, and, and I'm, I'm certain that it's not as simple as a spectrum because experience is, is such a deep uh, thing. Um, but just to create that simple representation of like, I don't think the um, ability to notice the roots of certain experiences is there in at least the higher intensity movements. Whereas by radically reducing the intensity of the experience, it is then perhaps possible to, uh, to notice some of these things. And I, ma I made the point that even the intention to meditate, I believe, can, can obscure the ability to observe. So I think like, that's the degree to which this is a state of reduction. Yeah. I think about um, 
I don't, I forget where I read this. It might've been like, like an Alan Watts book, maybe like uh, the mm. way of the way of Zen probably was talking about like, you know, the introduction of like a formal meditation into the Zen monasteries. And from my understanding, that was never part of like what would happen originally inside the Zen monasteries. Mm. There, was, there was no seated meditation mm. that came along when they started bringing children in and they had no discipline. So they started making them sit. <laughs> and then as the world changed and things became, I don't know, it's almost as if as the world developed more distractions, right? It became this more fitting practice that actually became mm. a staple of the practice. Mm. Um, I guess not saying that like, you know, Zen meditation is the only thing, but like, you know, that's, you know, a way that's been around a long time. Um, so I, I thought a lot about that and, and wondered to myself, like, well, you know, is it kind of that we don't have the time for boredom anymore or the space for boredom, right? We don't have that, we, we, you know, and, and over the years, we've created less and less space by having more and more distractions arrive where it's like when we get that sense of stillness and boredom that which may have been like the place that would have facilitated this kind of observation that we, I'm picking up my phone right now. We pick up our phone or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we, we turn to something that like, you know, takes us away from those, from those moments and things like a, a meditation have become uh, to mean more just because of the nature of our, our highly distracted lives mm -hmm. than the way it, it might've been at other times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also it's sort of, yeah. Again, this book, uh, The Elephant in the Brain is speaking a lot about um, uh, social signaling. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely recognize in myself the, uh, buried intention to impress or to leave an impression on others even if I'm doing an action that is only for myself it's like these things are so deep um so, so sort of deeply embedded that um it's, it's 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 very difficult to um act in a sort of like truly in, in intrinsic way um, in, if, if, if that's clear in the sense that all of our actions, if not all, uh, many of our actions are, are embedded into the um, sort of imagined perceptions of others. And, uh, Which is almost like, you know, the, always like the attempt to like reinforce ourself or our identity, right? Because like yeah, right. our, our, our identities only mean something in relation to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I find I find that also quite a quite interesting. But I I, I think a, a deep meditative state is quite a sincere place to be, um, and and it's perhaps a powerful uh, wellspring of sincerity in in the sense that if you are at least attempting to face yourself and you're not um, meditating but yeah, do, doing whatever you whatever you do um 
then uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, a tremendously powerful place to um, find um, some some connection. Um, I, I find um, that there's this notion of There's so many places to go, and I'm like, do we do we want to go here? But, uh, <laughs> there's a notion of um, actually, yeah, I'm, 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 I think let, let's let's not go there because I think my intention to go there was just getting carried away on on the uh, um, on the uh, on the tangent of tangents, but um, maybe I have some. Uh, other intention. I think I would like to speak about the the group, the exploration group, and so I think maybe yeah. that's my resistance. Is like I feel like we're going further and further away from that. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, okay. Well, then then tell me about the exploration group. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, over the last uh, essentially since the beginning of the pandemic I, I lost a lot of my coaching work and I was like okay what, what am I what am I going to do I had a plan to start um, s some kind of uh, research-based group some kind of like group for autodidact self-teachers um, online at some point it was a sort of like two years down the line plan and then it like COVID started and it was just like right let's 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 do this let's give it a go so it, the exploration group is a first principles bottom-up approach to learning so we're taking scientific ideas um, ideas theories that have been um, past some some sort of rigor um, and seeing what can be done with them so it's it's a sort of generative um, process uh, based on the idea of um, idea is not the right word, but based on the um, uh, grandiose term hyper reality of uh, exploration as a, as a sort of um, archetypal phenomena. So, in, in in the sense that every animal experiences unfamiliarity and uncertainty. And on the other side, every animal experiences some degree of familiarity at some point. And exploration is a state that mediates between these two. So I'll, I'll flesh that out a little bit more. Familiarity being uh, how we feel um, in a conversation with someone who we, we know very well. We're at a familiar bar playing pool um, or we're foraging in the forest in, a, in our usual uh, foraging uh, tree. And then unfamiliarity being again a sort of sub, uh, an internal space, where say um, you're at your favorite bar with your with your best friend, and then suddenly your best friend starts shouting at you and you don't know why. And that feeling, and also you're foraging in the forest in your favorite tree and you're gathering your little berries, and uh, and and suddenly you see a, a sort of faint shadow in the distance coming towards you and you're like. 
but what is this? I no longer can predict what's going to happen. Obviously, we can never really predict what's going to happen, but we predict that we can predict what's going to happen. So these are all internal states. And so the notion of exploration is uh, this is the state that mediates between the unknown and the known uh, through a process and described as the orienting response or the exploration response. So it's essentially what you find is when an animal encounters something that it doesn't recognize, if it has absolutely no idea what it is, it's probably going to run away, uh, be aggressive, or be completely still, see what it is. When it gains a sense that the thing is unfamiliar, but it's safe enough to approach, it will start to engage in this exploration reflex. So this is, I'm going to move towards this thing. Is it lunging at me? Um, what's going on? Uh, okay, that was a little bit scary. I'm going to back away. So is this sort of approach, avoid, um, sort of dual feedback process. Um, and the group is based on this notion of sort of safe enough uncertainty. So finding things that are uncertain, unfamiliar, we don't really know what we can do with these ideas, but we know that they're solid enough that we can trust them. The idea is to sort of trigger this process of, of curiosity, of um, kind of active approach, and, and if we get it right, also some sort of um, trial and error process. Um, and we've done this with uh, two topics so far. The third on cybernetics will be, will be starting in, in the middle of June. Uh, the first one was on the uh, the Weber-Fechner law, which I've made some reference to, which is um, one of the principles Feldenkrais's work is uh, based on. And uh, that was highly educational. Um, the second topic was on the sense of threat and safety. So fear and the opposite of fear, perhaps. Uh, and in this one, we took um, a number of uh, scientific principles um, such as, yeah, I mentioned interoception and some more of Feldenkrais's ideas on the somatic background of experience, some ideas on uh, anxiety, psychological anxiety is a sort of analog for physiological uh, disorientation. You know, when you don't know where you are, you sort of freeze up. Uh, this, this kind of idea. Some, some sort of philosophical, psychological ideas from Jung, uh, Krishnamurti, others, and essentially engaged, and, and through the first process, engaged in a conversation around these topics to create context, create analogy, uh, bring the ideas to life, infuse them with, with stories, with observations, 
and how did this notion make you feel? So we're using, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Krishnamurti, but he's a famously triggering philosopher. And he's always got something to say that makes you go, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm avoiding that or like, uh, yeah, my, my suffering is self-inflicted in this way. I can see that. So using some of his, his ideas on, on fear uh, to trigger some some self-reflection and then discussing these these ideas and how can these ideas be brought into the teaching context, for example. And yeah, so it's, it's made up of three you know, three phases working with um, these initial research topics. Um, so some, some reading, uh, secondary phase of conversation, discussion, analogy, emotion, and the third phase relating to uh, creating projects based on the ideas, so trying to create a more sort of embodied sense of um, um, how the ideas can be applied. And uh, again, kind of emphasizing like, what are you interested in? I'm going to tell you what to do. Like, what do you want to do? And then just giving the support of the group to uh, to do that. So yeah, it's it's been. Uh, um, yeah, fascinating process of uh, like kind of having this initial idea, um, and then it, it it getting again refined through these kind of real world feedback loops of like just a, a little bit of feedback from the group, um, focusing on just a little bit of it at a time that seems sort of most most important. And, uh, yeah, um, it's been. Uh, fascinating learning process I think for everyone involved so yeah is it something that um you, I think you said it's online but it's, it's it's something that anybody could participate in who wherever they're yeah, located in the world so, yeah we've got dancers parkour practitioners coaches um Alexander teacher uh, meditation teacher so it's a very di diverse group so there's a great requisite variety going on so there's a lot of like a, a broad intelligence so also just something that, you know, as you said all that, it's like, it's something I, I mean, I just wrote this blog that I, I just put out like right before you and I hopped on and nice. a little bit involves this like, you know, desire for, for more of this like cross pollination. So like, you know, yeah. when you, when you present a, a subject or, or, or an exploration to a dancer and then the same exploration to a parkour athlete. And then you hear the conversations about that exploration from through those yeah. two different lenses. I mean, there's so much there and to yeah. hear, you know, the way you, and, and I, and I realize after now that we've, we've spoken, like, you know, you're, you're more analytical and I'm more uh, uh, artistic, I think, as, as we like navigate things. So it's, mm. it's, it's so fascinating to hear you and I talk about the same things yeah. Yeah. through yeah, different yeah, exactly. filters. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and some of the things that I kind of talked about in there was kind of tiptoeing around the idea of like, that's, that's what we need more of. Mm. You know, like we all need to hear each other's stories. You know, especially when we talk about walking into a world and having more information to make better predictions, mm -hmm. you know, like, I, I don't know, I need to hear the dancer stories and I need to hear mm -hmm. the Feldenkrais practitioner stories, you know, mm -hmm. like, 
I have more tools and they have more tools from hearing my stories about the same thing, you know? And I, I don't know, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that that's a, a really unique and magical thing to get to, to have that happening in one place on, on, yeah. a, on a subject or an exploration. Um, so when does the next one start? Uh, the next one is going to be in July, um, which has now been, yeah, the uh, initial plan was to do it like the week after the last one, but I was like, nope, I need like three months to deload from that. That was right. super intense. Um, but yeah, so that's going to be on, on cybernetics and uh, feedback loops in particular. Mm -hmm. exploring how they can be applied into uh, um, first just the, the sort of basic principles and then applied into the context of um, movement um, relating to movement as a process regulated by negative feedback loops so that the, the task registers as complete um, now, now I'm freezing because I failed explaining this earlier today. So now I'm <laughs> self-conscious that I'm going to fail explaining it again. But I think I failed, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll miss that one out, and that will just be a preview. But um, I'll have a lot of opportunities to practice explaining that. But um, but that's the yeah, feedback. But that's the feedback loop. There's some feedback there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, find more analogies. Um, so yeah, for, for, for one sense, um, understanding movement is a negative feedback loop. What that means, you'll have to find out. Uh, understanding movement is uh, um, reducing the difference, uh, reducing the space between um, sensation and action um, and trying to create, create a clearer loop between those two things. So for example, uh, when you, you sit on your hand for for 10 minutes and then um, try and do a fine task, use chopsticks, open a door with a small key, you'll find that the lack of sensation in the hand makes the task more difficult. So there's a, a lack of communication between the sensors in the hand and the uh, vectors of, of the muscles. So, um, yeah, working with some of these ideas and then seeing how they can be applied into yeah uh, movement and uh, games design i'm excited to explore as well and games are a wonderful way to teach yeah man yeah you're speaking my language um yeah i mean how, how like if um if i wanted to participate how how do i go about doing that yeah just send me a send me a message and um, you can check out my website i've got a uh uh PDF introduction to the the um, the pedagogy of the of the group, um, which I've kind of described, but obviously goes into more detail, which I called the orthogonal pedagogy. Um, orthogonal meaning at a right angle to you, and kind of referring to this um, principle of efficiency in parkour that I find to be very inspiring. Just go directly towards the thing um, if you can. So that details, the PDF details, some of these ideas and the structure of the group. Um, so I would say, uh, yeah, go and, go and check that out and then uh, send me a message. There should be a little box underneath where you can do that. 
or at Instagram is uh, also good. Yeah. What, what you're using it for. What, 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 is it, what is your Instagram in case anyone wants to look it up as they listen? Very easy to remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Flynn Disney. Mm-hmm. That's easy. Yeah. Not a lot of uh, Flynn Disney. So. Yeah. Yeah. And um, are you do are you are you doing any other teaching like uh, like in person or or will you be traveling to do any workshops or anything coming up? Yeah, I would love to travel for some workshops. So if anyone wants to invite me, please uh, go ahead. I, I don't know uh, when the UK will be opening up um, so to to be seen, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm very much interested in. Uh, really again just seeking that real world feedback with some of these ideas and um, diving into uh, their application um, but I'm also teaching or, 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 or guiding I think is the right word uh, the London exploration session so this is a another application of this idea of exploration and safe enough uncertainty taking a group into the streets of London with a kind of unknown destination. So we're starting at a different uh, area each week and going either in a semi-random direction, like I know there is a space over here that we can use or in a complete random direction and then improvising along the way. And uh, it's great fun. Well, listen, yeah. if I, if I, if I, you know, if I make it to Europe in the fall and if they allow me into the UK, uh, you yeah. know, who knows how things look, I sign me up. I'll be there for sure. I, I, I very much look forward to that. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I feel like we got to go grab some coffee and, and, and chat some more when we get, when I yeah, get there. Yeah. I think this is a precursor to that conversation. So I look forward to that. Exactly. I think we're just like laying the foundation. Who knows? Maybe, uh, yeah. maybe somewhere down the road, we, uh, we collaborate on some sort of workshop or something. That would be amazing. That would yeah. be great. Man, I am so happy that, um, that we made this happen. You know, I'm happy that, uh, that Kim sent me that message and, and suggested Kim's that. It was wonderful. Uh, thank you, Kim. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. I feel like uh, this is such like, um, I don't know, that, that right kind of connection. I could feel. Yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, uh, between, na- between now and the fall, we'll keep the conversation going from afar. Great. Looking forward to it then. Killer, man. Thank you again. Thank you so much.